0: Hey everyone, I'm Alex Cantor. And I'm Lily Rosenthal. Welcome to our podcast, Hot Pastrami. We are coming to you from our favorite booth at Cantor's Deli here in LA. We're gonna invite some of our friends to join us for a chat over some matzo ball soup and pastrami sandwiches. So join us for new episodes of Hot Pastrami every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts. See you soon, bye.
1: I'm Gabby Reese, and welcome to the show. My guest today is Dr. Russell Kennedy. His new book is called Anxiety Rx, a new prescription for anxiety relief from the doctor who created it. I really love this book. I've actually read it a few times. This was my second interview with Dr. Kennedy. Our first one got botched. And so I had a chance to really take in all of the material. And what he does so incredibly is takes hard science. He was a neuroscientist. And then compassion, because this is somebody who grew up with a schizophrenic father who eventually ended up committing suicide and had attempted so when Russell was about 13. And so he's got the two living side by side, like he really understands because he lived it and went through it and couldn't figure out how to manage or, you know, get rid of his anxiety. But he also has this scientific linear approach, which is like, well, what is happening? And I love the book because there's 109 bite-sized chapters, if you will. So it's a great tool, like if you read a chapter and you think, oh, there's something important in there for me, you can go back and, and read it very easily. And it's again, constantly bridging what's happening in the scientific way, and then also what you might be experiencing. An important part of his message is that anxiety is not a feeling, that when we are experiencing these things in our brain, how do we move those into our bodies So that we can manage them and deal with them and maybe even move them out and so a lot of us get stuck in the loop in our brains and his whole message is okay here's exercises we can do to move these things from the meaning maker right because let's say you're having a stressed out day your brain goes okay well i've got to give you reasons why you're feeling anxious so oh it's your relationship oh it's your job maybe it's something stored in your body from childhood that you don't even remember What I love about Dr. Kennedy's approach is, hey, how do we get this out of the brain, into the body? How do we soothe ourselves? With the hopes of not only managing it, but then eventually even trying to find ways to heal from it. And I know a lot of people suffer from anxiety, and so whether you know someone or you're experiencing this yourself, this is a really great conversation. And I think these ideas can be applied for stress. You know, a lot of us are, as they say, You know, it's like you're projecting or you're past-futuring what you think is going to happen. So even if you don't have full-blown anxiety, which is different than feeling stressed out or being in a stressful time, these are still really important ideas that can sort of shed light on ways of like, oh, yes, I can do this differently and make this a little bit easier. And, uh, you know, Russell is just a very compassionate, intelligent person. And I hope you enjoy the conversation.
0: Hey, Gabby. Hi. Take two. Yeah, no kidding. This is awesome. So I I, I look read... like a pasty white Scots person, and you look like, like a beautiful Hawaiian. So it's, oh, uh, it's a nice contrast.
1: To Way to start it. I'm, you just put me in a good mood. Thank you. First of all, I am so sorry about the last time, but now we ah. have a double cover. Your, your podcast threw us over the edge. So we'll get started, and I'm excited to... Um, Talk about this because it's funny. Yeah. I re-listened to your book, the you know, in the last couple days. Oh
0: wow! Okay. Though,
1: well, you know, you got to be up I'm on fair. it. Yeah, I can't. Sure. You know, and I, and I was like, oh, you know what? I'm excited to talk about this again. Yeah. What's the temperature,
0: Dr. Kennedy, where you are? For me, and you can call me Ross Gabby. Uh, it is probably uh, in Fahrenheit, probably sixty-two, sixty-three. Oh, that's not bad. Yeah, it's okay for Canada.
1: I, I still think when people go to medical school and then they become neuroscientists, that they should be called doctor. All that schooling, you deserve it. But whatever I you're more go,
0: comfortable with.
1: I might go in and out. And yeah. um, for those of you listening, I am going to be completely transparent. Uh, this is the second time I'm, a te- I'm doing this interview. We had a technical glitch. Unfortunately, um, Dr. Kennedy and I are not uh, in the same place. So our technology blew out. So I'm excited to do this again.
0: Yeah, I was. I wish I was in your place, actually. You know, Victoria is <laughs> so, a bit cold, but uh, I would love to be in a sunny environment.
1: I know. It, it does make a difference talking about, um, you know, we can jump right in. Your book is called Anxiety Rx. And first of all, I want to say the fact that you did the 108 slash 109 chapters. There's something... Not only digestible about it, but if something really struck somebody to go back and reread the chapter isn't a huge, you know, thing. And and I I know it's it's based on a you know b- bigger meaning. And and I want you to share about that. But I also think the way that you chose to write this book makes it um, something that also, if people are really going through it, that they can go back and back and back to again and use it as a real resource. So. I just, uh, and I appreciate it. And for people who want to just learn more about this, let's say they're living with somebody or they have a child or a partner or somebody, I think it's, um, your, your book is an incredible resource because it's, it's not only coming from somebody who is, has had a very deep and personal experience that I would like you to share and your own relationship with managing anxiety, but you're, you know, you're a science brain. Sure. You know, you're you weren't are a neuroscientist. So you have this linear way of thinking and there's it's this combination of there's enough woo-woo as you would call it and yeah. science so that it meets us where we really live because we're complicated, but yet yeah. sometimes there is scientific things happening. So I, I really, I really think that this book is is such a beautiful blend of those things. So Russ, maybe just start with the journey in which sort of kicked you off into having to manage and figure out how to manage your own anxiety.
0: Yeah, sure. Thanks, Gabby. I, um, my dad had schizophrenia and bipolar, right? So from the time I was about, you know, let's say born till about 10, I didn't really notice, you know, he was, he was like an award-winning baseball coach and that's and just a brilliant guy, like in just the most, in one of the most intelligent people I've ever known but uh, genius and madness aren't that far apart, you know? So, so when I was around 10 or 11, I started seeing him just, you know, getting a little really, really strange. And then at the time we lived in Ontario, in Brockville, Ontario, and my dad was manic as well. He would go bipolar. So he just decided that he was gonna move out to Victoria, British Columbia one day, and then got on the road, hitchhiked out here, uh, and then sent for us, my mother and my brother, so my, my life as a child was kind of chaotic. You know, my, my father was very loving and caring and present when he was present. But the problem was when he would go into like a deep depression or a manic stage or lose touch with reality. Uh, as a child, you look at your dad like, okay, this is, this, this is the be all and end all. This is the guy that's going to pave the way for me. And then to see him kind of lose it like that was really hard for me because I loved him and he did so many things for me when from about zero to 10 and then those things started to kind of fall away and eventually he committed suicide when I was 26. So I, you know, for about 15 years, I kind of watched him just gradually decline. Now, there were some good times in there too. It wasn't like this. It was, but the thing about anxiety is the hypervigilance. Like you're always waiting for the other shoe to drop, right? So I'd always be watching him like, is he feeling a little bit low today? Is he going into depression? Is he getting a little too excited? Is he going into mania? And 99% of the time I was wrong, but I learned to really read people really well because I had to focus on him all the time. So what I did was I kind of lost myself out of that. And when you lose yourself, when you split from yourself, you, you know, you're a sitting duck for anxiety, eating disorders, depression, OCD, all that kind of stuff. So the book is really about me coming back to myself and really finding what what healed my anxiety after 30 years of, you know, um, psychiatry, psychologists, medications, frog venom therapy. I I didn't do frog venom therapy, but, you know, ayahuasca, MDMA. um, You know, I did all these psychedelics uh, to try and understand, not to get high, but to try and understand what's going on in there. Like, what is going on? And basically, the short version of that is LSD showed me that my anxiety, what I call my anxiety, wasn't in my head at all. It was actually this old trauma uh, of alarm that was stored in my body. And that alarm I didn't really pay much attention to, but it was actually the generator of the negative thoughts. So that's, that's basically my little journey so far. And I dealt with anxiety for many, many years and was really frustrated with psychiatry, psychology, all that kind of stuff. They, they really just couldn't help me. So I had to really go out and help myself. So I lived at a temple in India for a while and studied the science of spirit there, and became a yoga and meditation teacher, and just did all these things because I, you know, I firmly believe that my my dharma on this earth is to go through this shit myself and then translate it so other people can understand it. Because there's a lot of people out there that have gone through traditional. You know, therapy, and they're not a lot better. And then they blame themselves. And it's not your fault. It's basically we're just not treating the right thing. That's a long answer for the for uh, no, a it's, question, it's, but it's,
1: it's an important topic because, you know, it does feel accelerated right now. Obviously, there's more people on the planet, but I, I think that we are physiology is managing too many unnatural elements. Like, we're not supposed to be able to look into thousands of people's lives each day and know every single crisis on the planet and not sort of slow things down and connect. So I think I'd like to break this up because you sort of chunk the book into three, three, you know, pieces and really break it down because your whole thing is, and I want to, I really want to be clear about this. It's not, you're not saying, and, and we actually talked about this the last time, but you also mentioned it in the book is, Hey, I'm never, when I hear the word suicide. schizophrenia it's not like that never you you sort of have don't just float through it you know like let's say someone's lost a child to suicide i'm sure every time there's a news story like recently there was a you know soccer player from stanford a goal you know the goalie there i'm there it's not about every time you see something that oh now you're completely bulletproof, but you understand just how to soothe yourself and also be aware of your feelings. And, and so I I just want to say that at the top, because none of this in life, whether it's, I'm trying to be in a relationship, I'm trying to keep anxiety, I'm trying to manage this, I'm trying to deal with my weight, like you see this, it's everywhere. It's not about that you get it right or perfect. It's that you have the tools to manage it. And, and I just want to, you know, encourage people that this also is a practice, you have a practice in place. Something that feels really important is we're going to give people a bunch of information today, but no matter how much knowledge you have, it's like finding these practices that keep you sort of tuned up that you can manage it.
0: Yeah. And I think that's really it. It's it's like if I said, "Hey Gabby, you know, I I'll give you a million dollars if you can if you can sink 3 basketball free throws in 3 months." Are you going to start practicing the day before? No, you're going to start practicing right now. So that's the thing I tell people is like the thing about cognitive therapies that I have a, a bit of a hard time with. And I think CBT and all that is great. I just don't think it's going to heal you. But the thing about cognitive therapies is it leaves you when you need it the most. So when, you, when you're when you trying, if you're in the middle of a fight with your partner and you think, oh, you know, that book I read said that I should just take three deep breaths you know, you're probably just going to say, screw it, I'm not taking three deep breaths, I'm going after this person, you know, because our emotional brain is kind of taken over at that point. So it's learning how to practice this feeling state that you can recreate over and over and over again. And then that can be your kind of grounded platform, because a lot of us with trauma didn't have that grounded state when we were younger. And we rely on our thoughts to kind of save us. And in a way, when you have this trauma that's stored in your body, you don't want to go back down there. Like that's painful. So what we do is we go into our heads, we go into rumination, we worry, we get trapped up here because our ego sees that being trapped in our brain as a better option than going back into that old pain. Nobody wants to visit that wounded younger child that's still in there, that's still like, I'm still suffering with the, you know, seeing my my dad and the psychiatric intensity Oh, I can't even get through it in uh, the psychiatric intensive care unit. You know, like there's still a a charge in me with that. So it's it's just being able to recognize the feeling and treat a feeling with a feeling, rather than treat a feeling with a thought. Because when you try and treat a feeling with a thought, you can't think your way out of a feeling problem.
1: See, this is this is a big one, and everybody reacts differently. Like you were hypervigilant and also became hyper performing. Like you were going to save everybody. Like I, and I'm sure you're interested in the sciences, but I would imagine that some of the, you know, the reaction to your dad was, was becoming a doctor. Yeah. And, and I, I have my own versions of it differently. And, and meeting a feeling not with a thought was really struck me because that's how I always compensated, you know, when I was younger and I've talked about this briefly and is, you know, my mom took a hiatus from parenting from age two to seven. And then during that time, I was not living with my father either, but he actually passed away when I was five. And so instead of taking on a more of a victim mentality, I became hypervigilant. And every time I had the feeling I did, I always met it with a overthinking it. And that became a tool that worked really well. But something that you share is like, Hey, listen, when we abandon ourselves, then it's actually impossible really to connect with other people. And I, I thought that this was an important point that there's no way, even if we sort of can be high functioning, a lot of times people react by being overachievers, certainly, but you get, you're missing that link. So maybe we can just start with you get into awareness. Like you just go, Hey, first it's, you've got to, you've got to figure out and be even aware. So, for somebody who knows something's up because the reality is the body doesn't forget. And maybe we can't even, we don't, we can't even dig that out.
0: Right. So the body keeps the score. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's just first being aware. So in, for you, what is, what does that look like for somebody?
0: Well, I think the, and this is the sort of revelational part about like the book and my approach and what I found at LSD that I didn't really know before was that, Um, if I got anxious or as I like to use the word alarm, because anxious doesn't have a whole lot of conscious meaning to it. Alarm. Everyone's been alarmed. Everyone knows what alarm is. So when you're alarmed, when you're freaked out about something, it's like start scanning your body and, you know, look between your chin and your pubic bone. And, you know, you can do a version of it right now. Like if you're relaxed, close your eyes, relax your jaw, relax your shoulders. Just anyone who's listening, just, just try and just let your body just go. And then think of a trauma, don't pick the worst trauma of your life, but think of something that really bothers you from your childhood. And then kind of scan your body, typically from your chin, kind of like to your pubic bone. Usually it'll show up in the midline of your body. And just see if there's an energy there that's, that looks, feels a little different, feels a little more intense. You know, it could feel hot or pressure or cold. I'll tell you where mine is. Mine is in my solar plexus, right at the bottom of my rib cage. It's sharp. It's about the size of my fist it's it's like this dull aching hot pressure and it pushes up into my heart so when anyone mentions suicide schizophrenia bipolar that part of me will light up now i believe and this is where it's going to go off (laughs) this is where it starts to get flaky for a medical doctor and i want to have a seizure because it's so the opposite of how i was trained i believe that that's your younger self because there is this theory that if you experience a trauma that you can't handle as a child, and most, most traumas, you know, big traumas we can't handle as children, that it will it will go into your unconscious mind. And because the body is a representation of that unconscious mind, it will eventually show up in your body. Now, as that shows up in your body, for me, it's in my solar plexus, That solar plexus alarm, I believe, is my younger self, my 12, 13-year-old who really started to see his dad, like, fail, you know? So I put my hand over it. So if you get a chance, if you found it, you know, it might be in your throat, it might be in the middle of your chest or your belly. So just put your hand over it and just feel the warmth of your hand over the – and if you don't find the alarm, it's not a big deal. But if you do, put the warmth of your hand over it and just feel the warmth, feel the sensation, of your own sort of connected touch, because as you say, Gabby, it is a separation from yourself. You know, this this highly accomplishment-driven aspect of us, and you have it and I have it, is kind of a defensive accommodation to just allowing ourselves to feel the pain. So when you allow yourself to feel the pain, when you go into the pain, and you put your hand over it and you connect with it, you kind of cut out the middleman. It's like, this is what the child in you has wanted all your life. So, when you start giving it to yourself, when you start becoming your own parent, as Nicole LaPera talks about, when you start becoming, reparenting yourself and and connecting with that child in you, then you start renegotiating that split. And it doesn't, and this is where practice comes in. When you're talking about earlier, you know, you practice connecting with this part of you. And then, as, and then you develop a relationship with the child in you and then you accept them unconditionally realizing that there's no new shames they're all recycled there's no new blames they're all recycled there's no new you know things that you've done that no one else has done you know there's no new traumas there's just recycled ones so just realize that you're you're you know a citizen of the earth you're going to make mistakes you're going to do things that you're not proud of but chances are you do things you're not proud of because in your development somewhere you didn't get your needs met you know, I, I don't want to sound all positive, you know, everyone's got to get through. But if we don't get our needs met in a really critical fa- fashion, like from our parents or our caregivers, there's a split. And when things don't go right in your house, children blame themselves. There's a great saying that says, you know, when you abuse, abandon or neglect a child, they don't stop loving the parent, they stop loving themselves. And I'm almost done here because I know I tend to rattle on. So what happens is... That we create, we take these jabs at ourselves. And jabs is an acronym I created for judgment, abandonment, blame, and shame. So this is what we do to ourselves to make sense of the crap that's going on in our household. We judge ourselves, we split from ourselves, we blame ourselves, and we shame ourselves and then that becomes this internal critic or whatever narrative that you have in your head that keeps you from from connecting with yourself again as a child and then we develop these defensive accommodations for you and I it's accomplishment some people it might be depression they completely like like can't do anything other people may go into an eating disorder to try and control the environment that they can't control so there's you know I could talk about this stuff for years Gabby and I just I just love being on love like being I just love talking with you so it is one of those things where you know, I think we have to realize the root source of a lot of this and treat it the, at the root source as opposed to medicating it, as opposed to trying to talk our way out of it. Because there's there's limited penetration from the cognitive mind into the amygdala, the feeling mind, sp- superior temporal gyrus. There's all these places in our brains that just aren't that accessible to language. And, and unfortunately, that's where a lot of these negative programs are stored. They're not accessible to language. So why are we trying to heal these unconscious programs with conscious thinking it just it helps but it's never going to heal you
1: i think that this is a a really important comment and you even give an analogy of let's say a child before they remember were attacked by a dog and then they don't even remember the scenario but when they come across a a dog maybe of similar size or stature or you know of the dog that they have these fears and reactions so i think What you're saying is, I I really want to focus on this for a moment about that in order to heal these things, you also have to figure out how to connect with the body because, you know, and listen, maybe you can share when is a good time for, you know, traditional therapy? Is it you just want to go in there and kind of work some things out? Like maybe you're navigating some things at work and with your family and sometimes just putting it out on a table in a neutral environment. Yeah. I think, you know, there's something really powerful. That's why I always think our, our closest friends are the ones that just make that space for us and we kind of, you know, puke it all out on the table and let yeah. us navigate it. I, I don't know. I think that that kind of therapy feels really supportive for that. But if somebody is having something deeper, and, and by the way, trauma doesn't have to be, you have a very defined and serious yeah. trauma. Um, and I think, uh, you know, I have a friend who played in the NFL. And he said to me once, he grew up in Pennsylvania, very tough guy, obviously. And he's like, you know, my parents never said I love you right, to yeah. him. Yeah. And for him, he was like, I needed to go back in. And I needed to tell that kid, Hey, I love you, you know? And so I get, I just want to say to people, and, and I want to move on to the area. Cause you talk a lot about, you know, the victim mentality, I always tell my daughters, listen, don't be two things. Don't be a liar and don't be a victim. Right. Like, <laughs> you know, awesome. and, I, and I got one kid right now who's working on being, she's the aggressive, she's the aggressor victim. So she'll right. aggress you. Then if you push back, she'll flip on her back and become the victim. And I'm like, no, 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 no. You have to pick one. Yeah. You can't be both. Right. So, but I, I, I think, um, I just want to, you know, remind people that whether it was like a, Really big thing or not? If it impacted them in this way, it's like, hey, go ahead and see if you can get in there and do that. That you know, that connecting and finding those ways to let that be liberated from your tissue, if you will. Like, yeah. let's let that let's let that go. But that does maybe take a minute. Um, but you, you talk about, um, you know, with awareness. There's conscious awareness and unconscious awareness, um, and and you do talk about how a lot of people will sort of take on this victim mentality and also like worry is there to keep us safe so it's not like why yeah. is it there but it's you know ultimately in some you know in nature it was meant to be like oh what's that noise and you know what's that so we understand that there's a place but you also de- sort of delineate between worry and anxiety
0: yeah yeah anxiety is kind of like the chronic irrational you know fear of you know there's i i guess you know typically i I kind of put it into fear and anxiety fear is if if you're out on the street and you see some dark figure coming at you that's kind of fear that's happening in the moment that's happening right now anxiety is in you know you're on your 20 in bedroom or your 23rd uh, floor apartment and you're like geez i hope i don't run into a dark figure on the street tomorrow that's anxiety right so so I guess it's just you know and we have to see anxiety and worry for what it is one of the main reasons like i said earlier is we have this alarm in our body and worry and rumination is actually a really if you think about it adaptive way of getting away from that pain in our body but the problem is that the worries have to get more and more elaborate more and more more and more fearful to keep us in our head otherwise we risk straying down into the body where you know a lot of that old feeling a lot of those unconscious programs are are stored and we don't want to go back there so we kind of avoid that at all costs and this usually shows up gabby like when we get in our 20s or 30s it's showing up earlier and earlier now i notice with kids going off to university or college this is when it's really showing up because they've been using their phones as kind of oh that's that's me when i was a 3 year old you know so Aww. Yeah, so uh so they're using their phones as a way of distracting, you know, and there's a whole bunch of stuff on the phone about the dopamine response and the and, yeah. and the reward system and that kind of stuff. But in a way, there's no boredom anymore. There's no angst anymore because all you have to do is go to your phone. So we never learn any resilience. The phones are actually anti resilience, you know, operators. They just don't allow us to create this this okayness with boredom or with i don't you know i don't feel very good right now so instead of actually processing that negative emotion we never actually get to that and so we just keep using our phones and then when the kids go away to school or college or university they go back to their phones but their phones aren't enough anymore you know they now they're in a new environment it's not enough it's it's not enough of a distraction from their pain to and then they call and then they kind of collapse and then you make a good point about you know, when traumas occur before typically the age of seven, we call that pre-verbal, you know, at seven, you get, you start to get a pretty good handle on your language. You start using language more. Uh, but if you have trauma before the age of seven, because we talk to ourselves in language and we kind of encode memories in language in a way as, as a way of recovering that, that memory, we talk ourselves back in it. This is what happened instead of feeling it. A lot of the time we don't remember So you can get someone who was bitten by a dog at two or three years old. They have a a lifelong fear of dogs, but they have no conscious memory of it. So what happens with them is they have pre-verbal trauma. And the thing that they respond to a lot is touch, touch therapy you know there's because it is it, there, there is that sense that you know when you're scrape your knee when you're 3 or 4 years old and you're doing okay until you get around the corner and you see your mom at the and and, the, and then you explode right so it's the touch it's the hug it's the it's that it's that physical contact and that's why i say now when you find your alarm in your system you know give it some touch because really that's that's how we're wired as human beings to respond to touch and if you have teenagers that are are feeling anxious put your hand on their chest just you know they'll probably resist depending on how old
1: come on if you walked up i mean you have you have a daughter it's like Uh i I have a 14 year old i mean i have three daughters but my 14 year old it's like i'm i'm moving in like i'm taking my life into my hands to get a good night kiss you know so can you imagine i'd be like brody let me put my hand on your heart but yeah it no it's it's an interesting idea because, but the funny thing is, is I feel like sometimes they'll be like, ew, you're so annoying, but then they would weirdly let you do it as well.
0: I think it's how you I, I, how you approach it, I think, Gabby. I think if you sort of say to your, your kids, look, I listen to this doctor who's an anxiety expert, and he, he says that once a day, I should be able to just put my hand on your heart. So if you'll just let me, because I, I love you. I want to make sure that as you grow up, you're not going to have all this anxiety and worry and the world just seems to be upside down. So... Would you let me just put my hand and put your hand over their heart and then put your hand on on their back right at the same sort of place? So you kind of surround their heart and just say, I'm only going to sit here for a minute, you know, and the number of parents that I give this to that the kids, you know, two or three months along say, can you do that heart thing? Can you do that? Because it works, right? Right. And there's such a resistance, unfortunately, as human beings, there's such a resistance in us to feel better when the world is kind of in this sort of catastrophic mode. We almost like resonate with whatever is going on in the world. So there is this perverse sense of security in being anxious because it does line up with how the world is. So when you do something that soothes them, they may resist it because it, doesn't, it doesn't, it's not congruent With what's going on in their outside world but you have to explain to them this is where the cognitive stuff comes in it's like look i talked to this you know i listened to this anxiety doctor and he said that we should do this once a day and then and then sometimes that you can make a joke out of it too but like have some have some play with it the other thing he said is that we should try and do some eye contact every day now i know that's going to freak you right out you know, and that kind of thing. And one of the tricks that I use with my teenagers and my parents is I get them to go into the bathroom mirror and they're not making direct eye contact with each other, like, like face to face, they're looking in the mirror and making eye and it works just as well from a neurological perspective. If you look at your parent in the mirror, it's a little easier for them. It's a little easier for you because it's pretty intense. Like try looking at yourself in the eyes in the mirror when you're not, you know, brushing your teeth and thinking something else.
1: I got I, I to tell you a story. One time uh, a different daughter came home and dropped a pretty big bomb on my husband and I five years ago. It was one, it's like one of the ones where you were like, you hope you never have to hear these kind of things right. and you know like, oh, this happened and I'm feeling this and like and we were completely uh, clueless, had no idea. I went upstairs. <laughs> Uh, after a bit, because I knew it was going to be a schlog. Uh, it was going to be some time. I have a good friend who said, you know, everyone gets their time in the barrel, like the chamber. Yeah. yeah. And sometimes you're there longer than you want to be. Yeah. And I knew this was one of those moments. Um, this wasn't something that we were going to just solve with a conversation or wrap up. This was going to be a process of healing for everybody. And I literally got as close as I could to the mirror and looked into my eyeball. And I was like, you're going to have to really be strong right now because yeah. I knew it was the kind of thing that you could see me and then see me in a year and be like, what the hell happened to Gabby? Yeah. <laughs> you know, when you see friends who they go through something, especially with their oh, yeah. kids, precious. Right? And so I literally remember going, cause I knew I was going to have to make a decision to really pay attention, to stand up straight. Cause I just wanted to go and like get under the duvet and just, you know, and I, and so I I understand the power of that, and I think you know it's an interesting thing where when we can even we don't even have to understand why we're feeling bad. No, we just can be like, I feel something is bothering me. I'm feeling off. We don't have to have everything listed out and perfect, and these are the dates and times. Hey, I just need to take a moment for myself. I'm feeling it somewhere. I think that that's the other part of this is that just living and being a human and, and being sensitive to the world around us. It doesn't mean, I don't think we have to take on other people's things. That's the other thing is I don't make, think it's, we're not better people because we're miserable because our friend is miserable. I'm, I'm not suggesting that, but I think it's, it's okay just to say, huh, I'm feeling something. I'm going to take a moment.
0: Yeah. And allow yourself to feel it because like I say, there's this compulsion that we have as human beings that we can solve everything with the mind. And that works until you're about 32, right? And then you, get, you go through your first divorce or whatever because you realize that you're going to have to feel it to heal it. You're going to have to allow some feelings in. And that's one thing, you know, depending on how much trauma that you had when you were younger, you know, feeling, allowing yourself to feel emotion is really difficult. And allowing yourself, even worse, allowing yourself to feel uncertain is probably the hardest thing for people that were traumatized when they're younger. And you you make a good point. It doesn't have to be like you were abused or, you know, abandoned or neglected on the street or whatever. You know, it depends on what I see with a lot of my patients is this the level of sensitivity. Just about everybody I see. Well, I think everybody I see with anxiety, alarm, whatever you want to call it, is this was born sensitive. I think that's just part of their makeup. And then when we're coming back to that victim mentality, it's so easy to drop into victim when your brain is telling you to look for threat. Because when you have alarm in your body, your brain, which is a make sense machine, is going, where's the threat? And if you're just lying in your bed and you're completely comfortable, you know, waiting for your partner to bring you breakfast in bed and you're freaking out, your brain's got to do something with that, especially the left hemisphere. It's got to figure out why. So then you say, oh, it must be my taxes coming up. Oh, my sister's coming over and my mom's going to be with her and it's going to be, you know, it's so easy to go into your head and just get it becomes a runaway train at that point. So that's what I'm saying is can you isolate where you feel this feeling in your body? Put some touch to it or, you know, breathe an essential oil. What I really want people to do when they feel stressed, anxious, alarmed, whatever they want to call it is you know, really focus on sensation and allow yourself to feel it. I wrote this article uh, a year or two ago called "Cognitive Bypassing" on Elephant Journal, and it's all about how, as soon as we get a feeling, especially a negative one, we need to explain it. It's like, oh, you know, why? What's going on? What is this? What could what could this be? Is he going to call me back? Is she going to call me back? Are we breaking up? Should I break up? Am I gay? Like all this stuff starts coming up, right? Because your brain is struggling to find a reason for why you feel this negative emotion. And the reason why it's struggling is because you've never actually given yourself the chance to sit there and feel that negative emotion, become acclimatized to it. And Bessel van der Kolk talks about this and the body keeps the score, is that we're not, we're not getting people to get rid of their anxiety. What we're doing is they're acclimatizing to this feeling of, this is what I believe, is we're acclimatizing to this feeling of alarm so it doesn't fire us out into our head and tell our head, What's the reason for this? What's the reason for this? And then on top of saying, what's the reason for this? Because your body's alarmed, your brain preferentially looks for threats. So it will find a threatful reason, if that's a word, threatful reason. And then, of course, when you come up with the the horrible thought, the reason, that recharges the alarm in your body. So you get caught in what I call the alarm anxiety cycle. And the only way to get out of that is to go in a sensation, allow yourself to feel it, and just acclimatize to it teach yourself that you know what this is uncomfortable i don't like this feeling but if i i find that if i don't compulsively add thoughts to it i'm actually okay and if you're not okay and this is the thing if the if the feeling is just too much to handle then you know look for a therapist like a somatic therapist or someone that can help you through to allow you to acclimatize to this feeling so that when you get the feeling cuz you're going to get it you know every time i when i get stressed I always get it in my solar plexus. It always comes to the same, no matter what I'm worried about, and and it's like, okay, there's that feeling again. And then you teach yourself, okay, there's that feeling. This is what I do when I have that feeling. I don't go into my head. That's the last place I want to go. I want to go into my body and and feel it to kind of heal it. And I'm curious, Gabby, like, what did you do when you talk about that thing with your daughter? What did you do when you had you know huge matches as in volleyball, like before, like a huge huge match? How would you prepare? How would you ground yourself?
1: I would create a ritual sort of that would get me to shift gears from like, okay, ha 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 to a more lock and load. And I would use the steps of the ritual to kind of move myself into a different part of my personality. So, you know, you would, you would, uh, sort of get ready your uniform. I'd put my hair back. All of these were like active triggers who were moving into this next a uh, place that is sometimes uncomfortable and also trying to bring in the focus without gassing out right because yeah. you can't be in this intense focus for so long but you sort of start to narrow the focus and then you get these moments within playing that the focus got you know more narrow and wider but your everyday living is much wider and then when you sort of say hey I'm going to work I have a big meeting that scope gets a little smaller now we're talking about a point and answering questions okay that point's even more focused but you can, you have to move that aperture cuz otherwise you you get too fatigued yeah um, so it was finding a way to move there relaxed so that i had the energy to actually execute and then once i'd like run around the court i would sort of start to sort of uh, tell myself this is my area and space you know, like I feel comfortable here. I belong here. I would take a little ownership of that space, but I wish I knew some of the things. now I would have used my breath more. And you talk a lot about the parasympathetic and sympathetic to downregulate. So when I work with athletes that come here and I go, Hey, listen, if you have one minute between plays or two minutes, how do you quickly downregulate and get back to that even baseline and using that long exhale, closing your mouth, trying to use the nose breath, just to move yourself into the parasympathetic because otherwise, it's it's too tiring. You can't yeah. just be, you know, all the time. I, I want to just you said something in the book that I, I want to remind people. You say what anxiety is not. It's not a feeling. It's not real. It's not a coping mechanism. And you you also say, hey, and it's not a weakness. Yeah. And so I think it's it's really important. And that's not to say that people who have anxiety that that's not real. That's not what we're saying, you know, because I really respect and appreciate if people are having an experience. However, you know, you really get into like, and by the way, it's not, a. it's, it isn't a coping mechanism.
0: Yeah. It's funny when I wrote the book, you know, cause when, when you say that now it's kind of When I look at it now, with the the stuff, it is kind of a coping mechanism in a way, you know. Because what it is is it's you don't want to go into that alarm in your body. And then I just want to track back to something you were just talking about too. Is like, yeah, I'm not saying if you feel horrendously alarmed that you have to sit in that horrible, horrible pain. You can go in and into it and then out of it again, into it and out of it. So I'm not saying you know go in there, lock yourself in, lock the door, just you know blow your brains out. Uh, I'm just saying it's just like be be aware of what that feels like and then come in and then come out of it at the same time because it really does show you because you you want to teach your unconscious that the the negativity the anxiety the alarm isn't all of you because there is part of us when we get really triggered we go back there's that theory that says, You know, if you experience a major trauma at a younger point in your life, part of you stays stuck there. And then when you see that same trauma, like the dog bite, you know, you may not know if you got bitten at two, but if you get a dog approaches you, you'll go back into that same place as a two-year-old. Part of you will. So it's knowing that you can go into that space and then just teaching yourself that you can come out of that space too. You know, we often talk about finding a safe place in your body. For me, that's sort of my sinuses. So it's like, go into the alarm in my solar plexus, and I'll sit there for 15 seconds without trying to... I have this little mantra. I call it sensation without explanation, which is such a great mantra for me. And there's a great story behind it, but I won't get into it today. But it was just... Basically, when you feel anxious, just sensation without explanation, just that if you just repeat that phrase over and over, because then you'll acclimatize to that feeling and then know that your brain is going to compulsively try to worry because in a way it was a coping mechanism when you were younger, right? So mm-hmm. when, when you were younger, it was a coping mechanism. So I say anxiety is not a feeling because I want to tease it out to the point where we really get to know what we're dealing with. And when we tease it out, we can break the cycle that the anxiety and the alarm cycle on each other. So I think the, re- the, the point is to understand that anxiety is not a feeling. Anxiety is just anxious thoughts. And I often tell this story. If I have two teenagers in my office, say they're 15, and I go in and say, Angela, you might be pregnant, Right. Angela's going to freak out, right? But if I go in and I say, hey, Mike, you might be pregnant, he's just going to laugh. It's the same thought, but there's no belief behind it, right? There's no resonance behind it. So it's a matter of just allowing the thought to sit there as a thought, as a a collection of English words if you speak English, and just seeing it as this isolated, you know, curious thing and not automatically linking it into the alarm. Because as soon as you link it into the alarm, the cycle starts, and you—it's very, very difficult to get out of that cycle. And I think I interrupted you there.
1: No, I love, uh, I love that idea of also—it's—it's it's sort of like not all of you; it's a piece of you. And I also think that that can empower us to take a look at things because it almost would be like having backup like the rest of yourself, it'd be like having a big brother. If you were going to go face a bully where if you go, Hey, this is just a piece of me, but there's a bigger part of me. That's also there to support me as I look at these things. Um, it feels, uh, really empowering. And obviously that's why people who meditate have so much success because it's that resilience you're talking about. It's, it's the being it's not having to react to every thought and feeling. I mean, it's. What I appreciate is that there are all these tentacles that lead really to the same thing, all of these practices that are so important. And you talk about the three W's.
0: Yeah. Worries, what ifs, and worst case scenarios. They sort of go up. The first thing is kind of a worry, like, oh, you know, I'm going for my checkup this week. Uh, You know, my uncle had diabetes. I hope I don't have diabetes. And then what if I have diabetes? If, if, then I'm gonna. I can't eat sugar anymore. I love chocolate. What am what, what am I gonna do? And then, and then I'm gonna die. Like my uncle died of diabetes. So, so you've gone from you know within a minute, you've gone from I might have diabetes to I am dying from diabetes at this moment. So it's funny how your mind works because we have these amazing uh, imaginations, especially those of us with anxiety. I notice. That's one thing I notice about people with anxiety is they're typically very intelligent because I think we get caught in our heads so much that we practice thinking so much. Yeah. And and the other thing about it is that we just get we just get focused on just this this feeling. It becomes this kind of familiar feeling and we equate human beings equate what's familiar with what's secure. So if if chaos was secure to you when you were a child, which it was for me, like I got used to it. I created chaos in my life. I've been divorced twice, you know? It's like, it's one of these things that I noticed in my my relationships when I was younger, I would create the same kind of chaotic pattern. I would pick a partner who I needed to take care of like my dad, right? And eventually I would resent them and they would resent me and then the the relationship would would break up. So it's kind of like, look at your patterns as, as a child and just ask yourself, you know, what pattern did I have as a child that I am just replicating in my adult life now. Like I, I had a patient I always tell this story about my patient Jane, who had an abusive alcoholic for a father. And Jane was beautiful. She kind of looked like Susan Sarandon. And she had all sorts of male attention. And but she would only pick abusive alcoholics. She had that all sorts of men would ask her out. She would or or she would go out with a nice guy and just say, you know, there's nothing there. Like it there's there's no charge there so she would only get that that sort of intense attraction with someone who fulfilled that kind of you know childhood familiar pattern you know so I always like to say like the word familiar can be broken down into two words, family and liar, if you if you grew up in a traumatic household because it lies to you is about what's safe. And then you wind up following that, you following that path. So I tell everybody, what were the patterns in your childhood and how is that same pattern showing up in your in your life today? And it's amazing how like the, the number of messages I get back going, I had no idea that I did this, but this is exactly a replication of my childhood.
1: This podcast is brought to you by Ritual. I've personally been taking Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus Multivitamin since right when COVID hit. I was looking for something supportive and powerful. Someone suggested it to me and lo and behold, I I did some research and what I love about them is so women were kept out of research until 1993 by federal law and Ritual really knows how important women are. Obviously, if you're gonna be selling them vitamins, they're essential. And they conducted a university-led human clinical trial for their essential for women 18 plus multivitamin to really assess its efficacy. So right there, I was intrigued and even more intrigued by the results. It increased vitamin D, which is what I was looking for, by levels up to 43% and omega-3 DHA, so important levels by 41%. And that was just in 12 weeks. So they take the time and energy to figure out, hey, you know, does this work and is it gonna be good for these women? And not to mention that what they do is so smart. They they kind of hone in on nine key nutrients and they put it in two delayed release capsules per day that optimize your body's absorption. So if you're gonna spend the time and energy to really, you know, navigate taking supplements, everything is bioavailable, your body can absorb it, and it'll know what to do, and it's really gentle on your on your stomach. So you don't have to worry about like, oh, I have an empty stomach or after food or before food. They just take away all of those pressure points and make it as easy as possible and give you comfort in knowing also that Ritual's multivitamins are vegan, non-GMO, project verified, gluten and major allergen free. They're a certified B Corp and all of their ingredients are made traceable. Don't get me started on a nice little finished touch of the minty kind of aftertaste that they put in it. I mean, they've really thought about everything. So if, you've, if you're interested, if you're in need, no more shady business. Rituals Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. You will get 25% off your first month at ritual.com gabby. If you want to start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today, that's ritual, R-I-T-U-A-L dot com slash gabby to get 25% off your first month. Feel like sometimes it's also this thing of like oh what I deserve you yeah. know it's it's this weird thing of oh well maybe I'm not meant to be a person who gets that kind of love or gives that kind of love or yeah. is looked after I think it is it, it is connected into that and um, and it, it's funny I heard this study once that if you said to somebody okay this is how you're doing this in your life now if you do it, Differently, and you do it like okay, you're doing it like X, now you're gonna do it like Y, and you will be more successful, but it's gonna be really different than the way you normally do it. Yeah, people won't pick it because it's too uncomfortable. And you even will say, Listen, the outcome will be better. Yep. So to your point, that familiar is I think that, that must be some kind of neurological groove, also, don't you think? Like there's some yeah. pathway.
0: Yeah, Freud, Freud. Yeah, Freud called it the repetition compulsion. Freud had a lot of amazing theories. You know, he got a little, you know, <laughs> wonky with the sex thing, but uh, but he had tremendous he had tremendous theories. You know, and one of them was he called it the repetition compulsion, which is basically to reproduce your childhood in your adulthood unconsciously. You know, and we all do it, and for some people, it's it's just a revelation when they go my God, this is exactly a repetition. You know, I I was always trying to make my mother feel better. I was always trying to, you know, do things. I was always trying to be perfect for her. And I do the same thing for my husband, or I do the same thing for my friends, you know? And then you split from yourself. It's not really your authentic self. You've developed this coping strategy like she did. Her coping strategy in her head was, if I do everything for the person I love, they will love me back. So that's what you carry the rest of your, and that it creates a tremendous amount of anxiety because, like me, uh, abandoning my own the child in me to look after my dad's needs, you know, I, as soon as you deviate from that authentic self, then the jabs come in. Then you start judging, abandon, blaming, and then the, it just get the chasm gets wider and wider. Your mind and body disconnect. So that's why sort of exercise, yoga, breath work, that kind of stuff. That's why it's so great to sort of pull your mind and body back into connection. But you really have to find that feeling of alarm in your system, because I do believe that that alarm is your younger self trapped at that age. Like I, the boy in me is about 11 or 12 years old. He's watching his dad, as I say in the book, taking the that was the first real conscious memory of watching my dad being taken away in an ambulance to the mental hospital. You know, and I can still remember it now. And it's still and it still creates that alarm in me. But now I'm so familiar with it. I I I can actually go from that alarm state to that, you know, put my hand I automatically do it now. Like I don't even think about it. Makes it weird at the grocery store, but but uh, you know, it's just kinda like I just feel it now. And it's like, oh, you know, the poor kid, like he really, really had a hard time of it. And I can even laugh now because some of the the sympathetic activity is coming up. It used to be this kind of dorsal vagal shutdown when I thought Mm -hmm. about my dad or schizophrenia or suicide. Now a little bit of of, uh, sympathetic activity comes up. And I actually go into humor. I lean into humor a lot. And I also, just to follow that up, I also have to be really aware that I don't just displace everything with humor. Like, just allow yourself to feel it. You can make jokes about it, absolutely. But allow yourself to feel it. And I think that's why people are, are, are struggling. I think that's why relationships are breaking up. I think it's because we just don't allow ourselves to sit with our feelings without this compulsive, relentless need to explain everything we feel, especially negative emotion, rather than just sitting with it. And getting back to what you said before, like meditations like that, it's like, anger will come up, you know? How long is this gonna last? It feels like it's going on forever. And then you watch your thoughts. One of the the best little explanations I heard in meditation was, your thoughts are like a parade. And you know, you can just let the float go by. You know, you don't have to, you don't have to to, to grab onto it. And I think that's what meditation does is it makes us more thought resilient. It's like that quote by Michael Singer that says, you are not your thoughts. This is from the untethered soul. It's an aversion of it. It's not completely verbatim, but you are not your thoughts. You are the one that observes your thoughts. So if you can observe your thought in curiosity, you have a degree of separation from it and it doesn't charge you up so much.
1: I, you know, it's, it's so true. And, and also if you have practice with it, even like, um, I mean, I found this being in a long marriage, Uh, you know, I've been with Laird married almost, I don't know, 25 years together, 27. And there's a day like we joke, I have a girlfriend, we, we call it like moving the furniture, uh, dividing the furniture. Like there's days where you are just like, yeah, this is, we're good. Like, you know, and inside myself, like I see certain things and I have reactions and I'm like, yeah, we're not, we're probably not going to be married past like 5 PM. Sure. Sure. You know, but within that, like having fun with it, because I know it's not monumental, but like we're on each other's nerves or, you know, we've been in too much close proximity or I'm, I have, I'm having, I'm in a different part of my hormone cycle. So I'm not as cool as usual or whatever it is, because all this is real, by the way, like, you know, sometimes, especially with females, it's like, We also have to understand we're, we're sort of dynamic in a different way than men. And I heard, uh, Dr. Elisa Vitti said once though, at certain times in your cycle, if you're feeling things, write it down three times, um, three months in a row, like maybe I should fire that person. Maybe this relationship isn't working. And she's like, and if you write it down three months in a row, that's probably actually how you're feeling. Yeah. (laughs) So I, I think, the humor with the brutal honesty, at least with yourself, um, is a really helpful way. Also, at looking thing at things, but also letting them go. You know, it's yeah. it's sort of like hu- humorous aggression. I call it like I look at it, and I'm like really into the way I'm feeling about whoever it is or whatever the situation. But then I I sort of think about myself. From further away, looking at mm-hmm. myself, going, look at her. She's having like a little temper tantrum. <laughs>
0: yeah. Or and see then her, her as have- a child, Gabby. Like see her as the child, because you know that's
1: what that you, is a temper if tantrum. You lost your
0: like- parents essentially between two and seven, like literally with one of them and, and and kind of metaphorically with another one, actually. You know, there is that 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 child in you that that feels like this is over, this is done, like I'm gonna have to, you know, harden my heart. I'm gonna have to protect myself. So I can completely see. You know, and I have the same kind of thing in, in my relationships too. Like it's very quick for me to go, this isn't working, you know, and, and then it's, it's almost like inside of my, in my head, it's like a joke, you know, but for the first two marriages, it wasn't because we wound up getting divorced. But now I know where that comes from, right? Now I know where, and I, I talk to my little 12-year-old who feels like he's completely separate. And I know how kind of woo-woo and flaky this sounds, especially for a neuroscientist and a medical doctor. But it's really, it's it's just finding that place in you that just feels hurt. You know, any, all overreactions are age regressions. When you see someone losing their shit, they are, they have turned into a five-year-old or a seven-year-old or an eight-year-old. And I can guarantee you they experienced some trauma at that age and they're locked in it. Their amygdala is kind of bringing them right back to that place and saying, no, this is it. I'm not doing this anymore.
1: With kids, right? Like you're never, you, for me, I know I'm not going anywhere. Like I,
0: yeah.
1: I will stand tall and also I'm committed. I, i I blow it but I'm really committed about trying to be the parent and trying to be the adult. Right. Like when it's right. all happening in it, I, when i feel untethered and emotional, I sometimes will say, well, what would the parent or the adult do? Cause if yeah. I can't find it myself Ooh. emotionally, and I want to tell my kids like, Hey, fuck off and actually walk home and whatever. Cause it, I feel that way. Yeah. Um, or you're going to grow up to be a terrible person, you know, like whatever stupid shit we feel as parents. Right. Yeah. In that moment, I go, okay, Gabby, you actually can't maybe totally rely on yourself, but you can rely on your commitment to what would a parent do, and what would an adult do. And sometimes I just use that as a default yeah. to like, maybe I don't say anything. Maybe yeah. I go, oh, I I, I can see. Or I, sometimes less is more. But I I also feel like we all we need sometimes um follow the exit sign when we're in that craziness. Yeah, and so the practice of not only self-soothing but reminding ourselves, like, "Hey, how am I trying to show up?" Yeah, and so those, like you said, you wouldn't practice the day before the free throws, right? So you have something to lean on when it's coming at you in a real way, and you want to freak out, and you just go, "Wait, let me. I'm going to go to my strategy, which is I'm just going to follow the exit signs right now." Yeah, because. I'm pissed or I'm, yeah. I feel overwhelmed or I am scared because half the parenting thing for me is like, is, is fear that, um, is my kid not going to know how to work hard or have good friends or be loving or whatever the million things. So I really appreciate the humor and the practice, you know, there's, now, there's, another- no, parent,
0: there's no parenting without guilt. Gabby. That's, that's, that's it. There's no parenting oh, wow. without guilt.
1: One hundred percent. I don't know why that's an important natural mechanism. Yeah. I get it, but yeah. and I, I, okay, I have a thought about it
0: though.
1: Okay, a couple things. I think every kid needs a narrative in their life. Okay. Like they'll be like, my parents, uh, my. I mean, I've heard it all, but like one, I've even two of my three daughters have at one point or another in their development said to Laird and I. One said to Laird, "Mom, me yeah. is your number one." That's what they said is uh-huh. your number one. And the, uh, the, one of them said, well, he'll do whatever you want. And I think to myself, cause I'm their advocates, cause I understand their language better. They're females. Yeah. I'm their advocates. I'm thinking, yeah, because he's not, he doesn't know some of these cues. So we've had this almost like we're allies too much. I've had the younger one say like, we live in the same place. I mean, don't you want to change it up? And I'm thinking, oh, they all need something to push against. To go into their life to do it the way they need to, that should be different than us, and I and it's sort of like this weird acceptance of they're going to have something, and that's going to be I'm interested to hear what it is, and I'm and it's okay.
0: Yeah, and everybody's got their path too. I mean, I look at Jordan Peterson's daughter, you know, Michaela. She's had two joint replacements. She's had a lot of pain in her life, Michaela. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. and things are starting to really flow for her now. Like, she looks like she's got a good guy. She's engaged, which I'm really, really happy to seeing. But but I think, you know, part of parenting also is is letting our kids have their path, you know? And what's your intention as a parent? Like, when you were saying earlier on, you know, I have to stand tall. And, and you know, I'll remind you that you have no choice but to stand tall. You're six three, but But it is one of those things where you just... You know, we have to let our kids have their own path and, and we can protect them from only so much. And sometimes they're kind of almost from a consciousness level supposed to go through this for their own development, for their own thing. But it's really hard because I remember when my daughter was twenty one and she went into this real anxious phase. And I didn't know nearly as much about anxiety when she was twenty-one. She's thirty-six now, you know. So so it was I helped her for sure. And she said the biggest thing that that ever, that helped me the most was when you said, you know, when you wake up in the middle of the night, you just say to yourself one thing, when you're freaked out, when you're panicked, am I safe in this moment? And that's, and she said that to me, like she said that to me a couple of days ago. She said, I still use that, you know, in the middle of the day or the middle of the night when I'm feeling panicked, I'll just say, oh yeah, okay, that's all a possibility, but in this moment, am I safe? And that has really grounded her. You know, it's really grounded her in this sort of when she can find that place, because really anxiety is all about the future. It's all about what if it's worries, worst case scenarios, all that stuff. So if you can bring yourself into the present moment and the best way of doing that from my position is sensation. You know, use your sensation, use your touch, use your smell, use whatever you need. Give yourself a hug, you know, wrap your, your hands across your shoulders, you know, use that sensation because that will bring you into the present moment. The other thing is looking at yourself in the mirror, in the eyes, which is way harder than, than it sounds. Like it's, it's really hard to look at yourself in the eyes because you are talking to your own emotional brain at that point. You know, there's no crap. There's no BS at that point. You've gotta, You've got to, you know, answer to yourself when you look at yourself straight in the eyes like that. So it's just I think the big thing about parenting, you know, when we all lose it at points is like, what's my intention here? My intention is to provide the, the safest and I'm their best bet. You know, even if I'm not my, having my best day, I'm still their best bet. I have three dogs. So it's like that, too. And they all I, I walk them at the same time. They have three leashes that and they all go different ways. And they wrap me up and trip me and tie me. It's like they've all got their path. And I just have to sort of if I fight it, I just fall down. But if I just let them go their own way, you know, things are a lot easier.
1: Do you think, you know, uh, with parenting, you said guilt's always part of it. I think I feel like that's a next chapter of our growth as human beings, where we're always managing feeling like we're not kind of good enough or yes. doing it right. And when you talk about resilience, when you can make have a peace or a harmony with that feeling <laughs> of like probably screwed that up. You know, yeah. um, I feel like that that's some other chapter of our personal growth. You know, Laird always jokes with me, he's like, parenting's for us to grow up. It's, that's what they call parenting. You know, yeah. It's like, I think there's some other extra opportunity of learning because that is part of it, that you're always feeling like you're not good at it. Parenting is not about, it is the only thing for sure, besides like, hey, we're going to get old and die, that you just won't get right. It's just, you you can't hit the bullseye. So what it's so powerful for me that it's like, yep. And you're going to show up, you're going to wake up every day and you're going to keep doing it and showing up. And in a way for me that that is much more how life really is that it isn't about, boom, I hit the bullseye. It's that every day, even when I don't feel like it, I'm going to, you know, do my best. And, and, and there's something for me in that that is the next level of growth. And if people don't choose to have kids, I'm not suggesting they can't do it in other ways. I'm just specifically talking about that guilt that we're always experiencing as, um, as, as parents. It's, it's very
0: great point, Gabby, which is really, I mean, life is really about parenting yourself. I mean, that's really what it is, right? We have these little objects below us, these young little objects that let us practice, You know, and they bring up, of course, all our all our wounds, all our fears or whatever. But it's really about from my perspective is like, you know, finding where you weren't parented, you know, and and soothe that part of you, because that's when we, we stop the inherited family trauma. That's when we stop. You know, when you heal stuff for yourself, and I have people that, that contact me all the time going, my teenage son is, is, is really losing it, you know, it's all this. And I, the first thing I say is like, okay, well, first we have to, to fix you. Yeah. And once we fix you, then you're not handing down. Because unconsciously, not to put guilt on people, but unconsciously, we transfer these patterns. As, as our grandparents transferred the, to our parents and our parents transferred to us, we transfer these patterns either through non-coding DNA or whatever, because trauma can be inherited. Absolutely. And it's about learning, you know, the developing the awareness around, okay, what are my patterns? I tend to cut and run, you know, when things get when so that's my pattern, I know it's coming the basketball thing, like I'm going to practice in my mind, you know, the next time I get into an argument with my partner, I know my first impulse is to, you know, grab my car keys and go. It's like, can I give that another five seconds? Can I find that place in me that freaks out? Like, is it in my belly? Is it in my throat? Can I pay attention to that? Can I reparent that? As Nicole LePera talks about. Can I find that place and resource that place? Because that's the child. That's the part in us that 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 creates all this negativity on some level from their own childhood experience. And to wrap it all up in that in that sense. That child is supposed to go through different things. You know, I, I do have a very philosophic. My little time in India gave me a sense of everyone has their path. You know, some people get cancer. Some people get ALS. You know, some some people live a life that's, you know, pretty comfortable and pretty calm. But they don't, at the end of it, they, you know, they tell me, yeah, my life was, because I saw a lot of people as a doctor. Like I talked to them at the end of their lives. And it's like, you know, everything went well for me. You know, I kind of wish that I got divorced. I kind of wish that I, you know, something bad happened because everything just seemed to kind of, and I just say, well, that was your path. Your path was to have a, a comfortable, comfortable life. And then other people go the other way. They, they seem to get all, just every negative thing that could possibly happen, happens to these people. And I think a lot of us are, we're here because, and given these paths because consciousness wants to experience itself. You know, and when you were saying earlier on about, uh, you know, the, it just reminded me of what Teal Swan says about what what would someone what would someone who loves themselves do? You know, that's that's been a really great grounding thing too as well because you're really going and finding that child in you and loving them because when you can love that child in you and and you can and you can examine those wounds. And those wounds were there for a purpose. I grew up with a schizophrenic dad for a purpose. I wouldn't have written the book. I wouldn't have done all the work that I do to help other people had I not had that. Now, would I, would I have chosen it? No, I wouldn't have chosen to live a life full of anxiety. Uh, but am I enjoying it more now? Yeah, because I actually feel like I'm putting some good into the world because, because of my dad, because it was so painful, because I experienced so much pain with him. That's what drives me to help other people. And, and I always say, like, I don't want people to have to suffer with anxiety the way that I did. And that's why I found, a, you know, a new theory of anxiety, a new way of treating it, and, and a new way of understanding just, just how the angst gets into our system and how our mind just hammers it in there and just makes it worse. So if you can understand what makes it worse, it's like the story about the guy who's hitting himself with a hammer, you know, 100 times a day. And someone walks by and go, why do you, why do you hit yourself with a hammer 100 times a day? And he says, well, because it feels so good when I stop. <laughs> you know so it's just when you you can start making things better by stop what's making it worse is basically what yeah. I'm saying and what's making it worse is your brain is your is your compulsive need to explain the feeling sensation without explanation allow the feeling if it's overwhelming, get some help get some someone to help you process this feeling but until you acclimatize and get used to that feeling and allow it to be there and actually embrace it, anxiety is always going to hold you hostage.
1: And you, you really go through in the book, you have, you, you talk about the autonomic nervous system. You I mean, you, the, you give people the tools to also understand it on these other levels. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about that, but you, you know, basically if I was going to sum it up, it's like, you're asking people to go, Hey, from the, from the mind to the body. And you have a beautiful quote. Uh, and actually I, I, I know Robin Sharma and you, and he says, the mind is a wonderful servant but a terrible master, yes. and I I thought that that was pretty poignant. So maybe we can just talk about um, the foreground and background. Sure. Uh, uh, alarms, because you know you even because I think we get better and better at things even when we have more and more of an intimate understanding, yeah. even like the nuanced versions.
0: Yeah. So you talk so, about
1: different types of alarms.
0: Yeah. So I came up with this concept because I noticed I'd be driving, you know, say to go get my daughter or whatever. And I'd have this just feeling of impending doom. And it's like, I look around, it's a sunny day. Like what the F is wrong? Like there's nothing in my life now that, that is bad. So why am I, why am I just feeling this sense of impending doom? So I came up with this concept called background alarm, which is basically anything that challenged you in childhood. You know, for me, it was my dad, the separation from my dad. And anything that challenged you in childhood is going to form this kind of background of angst in your system. And then anything that kind of comes into your awareness that charges that up, like someone mentioned suicide or someone mentioned schizophrenia, that kind of charges that part up. So that's the background alarm. So, so it. It's there and it just, when you're sitting in a movie theater or whatever and you're feeling this sense of anxiety and you're looking around and go, there's no threat here. Like, why am I feeling this horrible anxiety? That's something from your background has been charged up. You may not even know the source of it, but something has been charged up. Foreground alarm is what everyone has. Like, if you come around the corner and you see a stick that looks like a snake, your sympathetic nervous system, your fight or flight nervous system, is gonna re- it's gonna rev up and it's gonna you know your heart rate's gonna increase your skin impedance is gonna is gonna uh, um, go down because of the sweat and or increase because of the sweat and you're gonna get into this um, alarmed state from what's directly in front of you what's happening so if there's a reason right in front of you that's kind of like foreground alarm that's you know and foreground alarm could also be kind of like say you've got blood sugar issues or whatever like it's your body kind of reacting to something and it's charging up your system. Now unfortunately those of us that have, you know, old background alarm, we've had wounds from our childhood that are unresolved and that are still stored in us, that will trigger it. It's like having two tuning forks and this is what I talk about in in the uh, in the book, two tuning forks that are set to the same hertz. If you bang one of them and put one of them beside the other, the other will just start you don't even have to touch it. The other will just start resonating. So so it's one of those things that that in those of us with anxiety and alarm, we have this background alarm. We have this alarm from our background, and it sits in the background of our lives. And if things are going great, it doesn't typically come up that much. But if things aren't going great or something triggers you, that background alarm gets fired up, which will also activate the foreground alarm, which is the typical fight or flight reaction, and your body gets flared up. And then then you get into that cycle. So then your body says, hey, we're all excited. We're all worried about something. What are we worried about? Well, we're worried about our taxes or we're worried about our relationship. You know, the mind will always make sense of it. And then that's when you get in the loop. So that's what I'm saying is like, when you get alarmed, recognize that you're getting alarmed and just know that your mind is going to start handing you on a platter, all these things that are scary for you. And you have the choice of picking up those canopies and eating them, and and putting them into your system, or just realizing, hey, you know what? A better choice for me right now might be just to ground myself, uh, and just in my own feeling of alarm, find the child in me that, that that's flared up, and really reassure that child from a, a touch sensation, from say, an essential oils, some breathing, um, anything that starts to calm that autonomic nervous system, with the intention that you are connecting to yourself, you're connecting to that younger wounded part of yourself, because that's constructive, that you can learn from that you can do something. But if every time you if if every time I heard suicide, I just freaked out and then had to wait for two hours until my body calmed down, I wouldn't be in a very good state. And you don't the worst part of anxiety is that you you don't know when it's going to end. That's the worst part about it. So when you have something that you can do and you start feeling some agency in that, you start treating the root cause of it, which is this sense of alarm in your body, which is your younger self, basically, finding that, reparenting that younger self, connecting with them, what would someone who loves themselves do, like really create that internal connection, the alarm goes away. Because all that wounded child wanted was an attuned, attached parent and you have to give them that attuned, attached parent now that they wish they had back then when the trauma was happening.
1: It's, so, it's such an interesting thing how a few years of our life just can impact.
0: Yeah.
1: I mean, it's planting the roots for the tree, obviously, but it is, it is always interesting. And, I, and I, I hope that people know that with a little bit of, of doing your practice, that the, sometimes the bridge, the time between the, the all that feeling or those reactions or those being alarmed, it, you can really shorten it. Yeah, you can you can really um, shorten it, and uh, and I also think then it becomes less scary when it shows up because you go, "Oh, here, okay, I know, but it, I'm not going to have to be stuck in this dark tunnel forever and ever." You you love acronyms, and I and I really appreciate you know, that you have them, you have jabs, you have alarms. Um, I would like if you could break down, because um, I, I think it's a really helpful one and, and so easy uh, for people is, your, you know, your ABCs. Right. Of, yeah. uh, and, and they go into, you know, faith they and gratitude. Right through,
0: yeah, yeah. So, yes, but exactly. but the, main, okay, so. the main thing is awareness. Like, just be aware of the, if you have health anxiety, just be aware of what you commonly tell yourself you know and then kind of smile when you start worrying about your health and just realizing it's not about my health right now it's because I've got into alarm and what I need to do is go so awareness is the first thing what's my normal trigger what am I what are the things that I often think about when I feel anxious or alarmed recognizing that early and then once you get that getting out of your head and getting completely in your body you go into body and breath that's B so awareness is like what, what are my usual triggers How are they? How does my body react when I'm feeling alarmed and training myself to recognize that early?
1: And also, um, Russ, I want to mention that you do have a, a chapter that really gets into breathing and holotropic breathing. So people have to understand you're not just throwing things out there that then through the book, they're completely supported with ideas on how to do this. So,
0: yeah. Yeah. So and there's a bunch of different, you know, breath. Our breath is the only real conscious link we have to the autonomic nervous system, you know. And I was listening to Andrew Huberman the other day, who I love his podcast, and you know he, he talks about the physiological sigh, you know, two breaths, two quick breaths in, and a long exhale, two quick breaths. And I actually intuitively have kind of worked with people, but I make it three. And and basically, I find when people do two breaths, they still if their chest has been kind of constricted. It doesn't really open up their chest that much. So I get them to make three, like one, two, three, real deep inhales, spread your your collarbones, spread your chest. Because when your chest expands like that, it sends a message up to your brainstem, the bottom part of your brain that connects to your body, that everything is okay. The converse is also true. When your chest starts to constrict, which it does when you get anxious, it also sends a message up like, hey, we're in danger we're in danger. And then again, the brain starts looking for, for, dangers. And if it doesn't find one, it makes one up, which is basically what worry is.
1: Well, okay. So I also heard to, to this point and I, I want to go through C, D and E and such, Yeah. but I did hear something interesting. And I, I would love to know if, if it's, if you think it's true is when we're on our phones, right? Yep. We're usually typically hunched forward that it, it physiologically puts us in a fight or flight
0: posture. It does.
1: And so I, I always thought, oh, on top of whatever we're being blitzed, what's happening on our phone, just the mere posture alone creates an anxious, uh, yeah. you're having an anxious, you know, physiological response. And I, I really thought that that was interesting. So just by, like you said, the shoulders coming forward. And I think it's maybe, tell me what you think. If you were in nature and you had your head down and you were forward, you're vulnerable.
0: Yeah. You're yeah, not looking think, or, Yeah, what happens you know. is when you're feeling, your body will match how you're feeling and your yeah. feeling will match how you're thinking. So it becomes this loop. So when we get into this place where where we were hunched over and, and our shoulders come in, it does tell our brainstem that there's a threat, that, that we're not safe. And then, of course, our brain, which is a meaning-making, make-sense machine, gives us all these reasons exactly why we're not safe, which confirms that. Which of course makes our body feel the same way. So you get the, into this cycle. So just reinforcing, you know, just breaking that cycle of reinforcement by, you know, sp- spreading your shoulders apart. I find, you know, I, I'm certified as a yoga teacher. So I find twists are pro- for me when I get stressed, the best thing I can do is twists because there's something about, because your spine doesn't twist in a day to day life. You know, you, know like you can do forward folds, you can go down and touch your toes and, and, you know, arch your back backwards. But twisting is one of those things that we don't do. And I think twists, and, and I always imagine when, when I'm doing twists that I'm wringing out my spine, like like all the old, you know, the, maybe the negative thought patterns or the negative energies or whatever. Now I'm starting to get into the little the woo stuff. But I always feel like when I'm doing a twist, it's like I'm wringing out like a towel, like I'm wringing out all the negativity. And, and twists you know, are one of those things that I think are highly underrated in yoga because I think it's really one of those things that it moves our spine in a way that allows us to discharge energy. And I have this thing on my Instagram called the six-way spine twist, which is basically forward fold, you know, arch your back backwards like you've got your hands in your back pockets, twisting from le- left, twisting right and then um, laterally going side to side where you kind of put your hands up in the air and then you move your, your torso all the way over to the left and all the way over to the right and that that six-way spine movement really just it kind of pulls you back into presence it kind of because your body and your mind they're so linked and they will do what the other one wants wants you to do so if you're feeling depressed your body will adopt a depressed you know posture and then that will reinforce to your brain it's like oh i guess we're depressed so, and, and the opposite is true too. If you open up and back bends are also amazing too, like, like camel pose in yoga. Like if I'm really stressed, I'll go in a camel and then I'll do twists and, you know, for five minutes, it makes a world of difference for me.
1: And I, I, uh, I, you know, it's like when you hear people go leave with your heart. I mean, there's certain, there's so many cues yeah. that we hear in all these other disciplines that are important. I used to do a breathing teacher, breathing class. And what I would tell people at the end is, we do the breathing and for a lot of people they can't concentrate so i'd say oh why don't you envision a color whatever your favorite color yeah. is that you want today but what i would encourage them to do is bring the color in see it go through the toes and the tissue go everywhere but also on the exhale see the color leaving and taking all the stuff you don't want that doesn't serve you the worry yeah. the the anger whatever it is see that leaving and and just trying to give people the tools to connect with that ability to go, oh yeah, I'm going to offload this. Um, okay, so you talk in your ABCs, then you yeah. have C, is connection.
0: Yeah, so A is awareness. Be aware, you know, the, the common, the feeling that you get in your body and your common anxious thoughts, because we all have the same sort of thing. And maybe you won't recognize the feeling right away because you haven't trained yourself to look for it. But So look for it, you know, get my book. <laughs> it'll teach you how to get it. And then when you find those, those patterns starting, Go into your body and breath. Get out of your head because your head is not going to help you. Even even if it tells you, hey, we'll just think positive. Once you start going into your mind, your mind will slowly start turning the corner and all of a sudden you're back into worry again before you even notice it. So awareness of what you you anxiety feels like for you. Then go into your body and your breath. Get out of your head because your head's not going to help you. And then find... Find some compassion for yourself. Find that alarm. Find that child, and really reassure that child that they're okay. You know, continue the breath. Really, if you have a if you have a picture of that of, of yourself, but as I have a picture of myself at ten or twelve, and I have it behind my bathroom mirror, and I connect with that child. So I look him in the eyes in the picture. Then I look at myself in the eyes in the mirror. Then I look at the picture. I reassure him that he's. The other thing I tell him is like, look at all the things we've done. Because he doesn't know. He's still stuck in t- at 12 years old. He's still watching his dad being taken away. So it's like I tell him, look, you know, we went to medical school. We became a yoga teacher. We lived in a, a temple. And in- we did stand-up comedy for 15 years. You know? like, And he doesn't know that. The child in you doesn't know all this stuff that you've accomplished as an adult. And it also doesn't know how you've made yourself feel better, your coping strategies, because it's still the child in you is still stuck back at that age. So developing the compassion for that child. And it's hard for a lot of us because we judge, especially if you were bullied. I know I'm covering a lot of ground today, but if you were bullied, you know, part of you actually agrees with the bullies when you're younger. So you get that split from that. It's like, well, maybe they're right, you know, maybe I am a nerd, maybe I'm not that, you know, funny or whatever it is. And then you get that that split just gets more and more defined. And the more split you get, the more of a sit and duck you are for anxiety, depression, all this kind of stuff. So it's really learning how to self-compassion. Kristen Neff um NEFF has a great has a great like workbook self-compassion workbook like self-compassion is probably the biggest one if not the biggest one of the biggest things to heal you is is just getting into that sense that you love yourself and you take care of yourself i see that a lot with my anxious people including myself self-care isn't our forte because you know, we weren't really looked after when we were younger. So we weren't shown how to look after ourselves. So it's not familiar to us. And the other thing that I tell people is no one's coming back to, to, to look after you, right? And I think a lot of us when we grew up with this trauma, uh, or if we lose our parents, you know, whatever from whatever, when we're younger, we're always there's part of an unconscious part of us, that's always kind of longing for that parent to come back and look after us. And a lot of people that I see use that kind of unconscious drive or desire to not look after themselves because they have this, you know, and they know it's consciously, they know it's not accurate, but they just have this hope that someone is going to come along and look after them the way their parent never did. So self-compassion is massive as far as that goes. And it really starts building. Once you start connecting with that younger version of yourself, some old memories will come up, which is okay, but it's just like allowing that stuff to come up. And just seeing yourself without resentment. Because that resentment is basically, you know, it just keeps us split and it just keeps us locked in anxiety and alarm.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people can, I can so relate to so, so much of that. And um, I really appreciate, I really appreciate those, uh, those reminders because, um, again, it's, it's, we're growing up, you know, and we can be 40 and be growing up. It's like, learning, we're, we're changing. I want to, I want to, uh, sort of finish this, um, with talking about the ego. Um, and, and you say also in, in the book, like, you know, what's the solution and it's like, heal thyself, you know? Um, but you, you do get into, with the ego and how either we're in protection or we're, you know, sort of in growth and yep. it's, it's kind of one or the other. So we're yep. either in this protection mode or we're in, we're in a, a growth mode and, and you talk about, um, you know, just where the ego shows up, the ego dragon and, and, yep. and such, maybe we could just kind of sort of, you know, talk about, cause you really, you say, Hey, listen, it's, it's not reflective It's reflexive and just talking about the ego's dynamic and all of this.
0: Yeah, like the ego isn't there to hurt us and and the ego gets a lot of bad press. And, And I invented this thing called the ego dragon, which is basically when you're feeling helpless and hopeless and powerless as a child, you develop this kind of mythical omnipotent figure to protect you. So we develop what I call this ego dragon. And, and the dragon basically will stop you from doing anything that has ever hurt you in the past. So the, the, it's kind of like the dragon is kind of like the amygdala. Like the amygdala, anything that's ever hurt you in the past, the amygdala will stop you from doing that again. So if you're uh, you know, giving a, a lecture to your class when you're in grade six and you, know, you split your pants or, or whatever it is, like the ego will tell you never, ever speak in front of people again, ever, right? So it blocks us from growth, but it's it's this hyper-protective, hyper-vigilant part of us that says, hey, I, I have this child in me that I have to protect at all costs, so I'm going to make sure that they don't do anything that challenges them or, or that goes against their old fears. So basically, we get locked in this, this sort of cavern of our own fears, and we can't grow, we can't go out of it because our, our ego just plain won't let us. So, and this is probably the most damaging in relationships. So with me and my dad, because I loved him so much, and he was such a great dad uh, in the early part of my life, and then all of a sudden it all just exploded, I got this unconscious program that, hey, to love somebody isn't safe, because they're gonna leave you, right? So in my relationships, they would start off all fiery and intense and that kind of thing, and then that old pattern would kind of creep back into my life, like, okay, this isn't gonna work out, so I, I would either separate from them or they would separate from me and the relationship would break up. And then I, and the whole cycle would start itself all over again, sort of like a Freudian repetition compulsion, like we were saying earlier. So it's really understanding that this, this pattern is in me and what can I do about it? What can I, can I understand it? Can I connect with that part of me that feels hurt, that feels alone, that, that has a, a, the ego program saying... It's not safe to love because that's just going to get taken away from you, which is a really powerful thing. And especially, you know, our our nervous system is not developed when we're a child and it's still pretty disorganized in a lot of ways. So the more trauma gets in there into a disorganized nervous system, the more likely that's going to show up in not a very healthy way. So we get all these kind of patterns and anything that's hurt us, the ego dragon will say, don't ever do that again. And, we, and our bodies will react in, in, in a very significant fashion to wherever we get close to that again. So whenever you get close to, to love, you know, for me to, be, to go into the personal thing, you know, the first three months of a relationship were amazing. And then after that, once the oxytocin and the, uh, and the serotonin and the, the chemicals kind of uh, dampened down a little bit, then that old pattern kind of came up again and i believe that that's that's the case with a lot of us like we're hardwired for love so when you first meet somebody and it's amazing and you have all this oxytocin shooting around in your system it overwhelms those old programs but as you become as the relationship becomes more mundane and drops down those old programs you know that were there before kind of start making more sense and, and you may not even be consciously aware of it. So I would get into this state where it's like, I don't think this is the right relationship for me or whatever. And I didn't know any of the stuff that I know now, of course. But it's just like we all have these old programs. And especially in love relationships, you know, the first flare of love is often, you know, we're, we're kind of stoned in a lot of ways. And we don't sure. really see. And then when that, that those chemicals start dropping off, then the old programming starts coming back up, and three to six months is like that critical zone in relationships where it's like, is this going to be compassionate love that you know you you grow together in compassionate love, or is this going to be this kind of fiery you know up and down, break up, get back together kind of um, you know disorganized attachment? Um, it, it, it's not fulfilling, and then you just re- replicate it. It's just like you just and then next new new girlfriend, different haircut. You know, it's just yeah. like I did that for a long time and I got divorced twice because my programming says to love isn't safe. And it's only yeah. been in the last kind of five years that I kind of figure that out.
1: Yeah. But I think that that's important because, you know, people, they feel, oh, I am I failed at this or I'm disappointed. Maybe we just weren't equipped yet. And totally. to give ourselves, you know, that be compassionate with ourselves and say, OK, maybe I have more tools I can you know, get in there and, and try again or allow myself, you know, instead of, I think that's another thing we do like, Oh, I'm not good at this. I'm not good at that. Um, and we, and we wrap it up and I have that in different ways. And I'm trying to get away from that. Um, because I realize like we can keep expanding and growing and changing, but we also have to be, we have to participate. We have to work at it. We have to get the tools. We need to raise our hand and say, hey, "Maybe I need some help." Yeah. And um, and you know, it's kind of amazing. I think we see that sometimes with people. Like I'm sure we have adult children that go, ma'am, when my parent was younger, when they were raising me, they were a completely different person." Yeah, you know, you hear that a lot. So, well, Dr. Russell Kennedy, the book is Anxiety Rx, and I, you know, thank you for doing this again. I oh, really it's enjoyed. A yeah, I really enjoyed this book. And um, I learned a lot. I was reminded some really important things. And, um, and for those of you listening, thanks for spending time with us. And, and, uh, you know, I just thank you so much, Russ. Really yeah, appreciate thanks, it. Gabby.
0: It's always, always a pleasure talking with you. You, you, you're, you're, I think you're just an amazing person. I think the world of you. Well, thank you.
1: Thanks so much for listening. And if you'd like, rate, subscribe, and leave us a review. All of my music was graciously done by Frank Zumo and Tom Thacker. If you want to see some of the behind the scenes action, just follow me at Gabby Reese. And remember, don't miss new episodes every Monday.